0: this is the official winning time podcast from hbo hyper object industries and pineapple street studios i'm rodney barnes I wanna build something special. The Los, Los Angeles, Angeles Lakers, Lakers. Lakers The entire league is on the verge of bankruptcy. Irving.
1: With me, it's gonna be exciting.
0: Magic. Magic. Our girls, they won't cheer. They'll dance. John
1: Johnson. It's Yeah,
0: This week on winning time, we got a whole lot on Kareem Abdul Jabbar. So on today's show, I'll sit down with the actor who plays the legend, Dr. Solomon Hughes. Also joining me will be the director of Episode 5, Tanya Hamilton. As always, this podcast is going to have spoilers, so if you haven't seen Episode 5 of Winning Time, go watch it, then come on back. Okay, let's rewind for a little recap of this week's episode. It's almost opening day for the Lakers. Claire Rothman and her team have revamped the form and given Jerry Buss nearly everything he wanted – A celebrity section, a sexy halftime show, a flashy after-party club, but with the bank breathing down his neck, he's feeling the pressure, and he loses it on Claire just days before the season opener. Wait, I thought we said we're gonna fix this. This is supposed to be flush here. Yeah, uh, we'll give maintenance a call right away. Why isn't this flush? Meanwhile, the team has added a new player to the roster, Spencer Haywood, an NBA veteran, played by the great Wood Harris, who's struggling to find his place on the Lakers. I mean, shit, you're talking about four teams in ten years. You're talking about every owner in the league treat me like a pariah. On the night of the first game, tensions are high between Magic and Kareem. Magic is pumped to make his professional debut. But the Lakers' longtime captain, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, has run out of patience with the rookie.
1: How many games have you played since I was a pup? Never once as a professional.
0: Kareem has other things on his mind we see a young Kareem in flashbacks grappling with issues of religion, violence, and discord with his parents. At his wit's end, he goes to a mosque where he meets an imam who imparts
1: wisdom to get him through. Abdul Jabal. Servant of the Almighty. God's instrument, not God.
0: By the end of the episode, Kareem seems more at peace and the Lakers have logged some wins. But then, tragedy. Coach Jack McKinney has a bike accident. Will he be all right? Will the Lakers be all right without him? The episode ends without any indication. Okay, today's guest is someone who I love. I'm conflicted about this one because I love this brother, but I'm afraid of him at the same time. Our Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Dr. Solomon Hughes. Solomon, you play the piano? I can play... Just, a few songs. That's enough. You know what, man? <laughs> to be seven feet tall, sexy, a PhD, and <laughs> can play a musical instrument. Uh, I feel inadequate. <laughs> and I don't want to feel, when I'm around Quissy, I feel like Batman. I feel <laughs> like I've never felt better about myself. But when I'm talking to you, I feel like I should have tried harder. <laughs> and I don't want to feel that way. You know, I don't know what you're trying to prove. And you acting now. You know, pretty soon it'll be a Poetry Night with Solomon. And I'm like, look, man. Look, come on. Right Solomon, my brother, how are
1: you? Uh, I'm good. <laughs> Thank you for that introduction. I'm, I'm going to do my best to hold it together, but oh, my gosh.
0: You're going to do well, man. If anybody I have faith in, in life, it's you. You know, let, let's first start off um, your process from getting from never acting before. What was the beginning of the journey in going from regular old Solomon to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? <laughs> when did that, that's, a, that's not a usual journey or a usual day for right. a brother.
1: Yeah, you know, growing up, I was someone like many people that was like deeply impacted by what I saw on... The movie screen, live theater, on TV, and Ethel Ayler, who played Claire Huxtable's mother on The Cosby Show, is a relative. I think it's my great great grandfather is her grandfather, and so growing up, my mother would always say, "Oh, whenever she would come on, that's that's a relative, that's a relative." And so, so I always like peculiar enough as it as it may sound, I, I kind of felt this connection to the space of like acting Mm. and and i i actually went as far as when i graduated from college i moved to la i i went down and met with a talent agent and he (laughs) he was as dismissive and abusive as those those casting (laughs) conversations can go and so uh you know so i wasn't deterred though because i i still like was hopeful that one day you know something would come my way and when this opportunity came my way, I was just so excited to audition, just to get some feedback, just to, even if it was no, it was like, okay, I can at least say that I auditioned for something. Um, And then, I'm sure you remember this, you and Max were the first two people I spoke to after I sent in my self-tape. I remember. And, yeah, and it was, it was, uh, I mean, I was trembling on the other side of the phone, but when you were talking about being tall, being black, it just was, it was, it was an incredibly empowering conversation for me because in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, man, they've really got the right people to do this story. Because here's someone, and, and for those of you listening, Rodney, what he you, six, eight, six, seven, six, eight?
0: Six, if I stand up straight, six, eight. Six, okay. I <laughs> lean now because
1: I'm broken <laughs> down,
0: but yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> so I, I, I was just like, I was excited for the story in general. And then I was also I felt empowered that you know someone was associated with this project who absolutely could relate to what it's like to be tall black and and, and a bit of an outlier. Um and so when when I got the part I was man I was flying. Um you I mean I'm going to I'm putting you on the spot and and I know it's you, gotta,
0: right. you It's all right. It's all right. Yeah
1: It's all right. There I ca- I can't imagine having done this without uh, the wonderful people that I was surrounded by, in particular you.
0: Well, you know, likewise, man. I mean, it, it takes a lot of heart. I remember one time thinking I could act, you know, even though I am in the show. I, I am Maurice. Let's not forget that. But Yeah, big role. Yeah, big, big role. role. But it got yeah. bigger as time went on. But, um, yeah. you know, I always thought I would end up like Predator or Godzilla or something, <laughs> you know. Like, what, what, they, what can they make me? You know, I'll never be Shaft, <laughs> you know. I'll never be the sexy <laughs> dude. But yeah, man, I mean, I remember, too, that con- that early conversation with Max, what ultimately was introduced to me when you walked in. The thoughtfulness, the introspection. Mm. In regards to basketball, you played professional basketball. Can you talk about yeah. your basketball journey before this?
1: Yeah, sure, yeah. So I was the tall kid that uh started playing the game because my older sisters were playing so i had an older sister who played at ucla and she was a fabulous player she was all pac-12 first team conference Mm. um, and played professionally as well and so you know following in her footsteps it was a game that i was attracted to but i think the reality was i liked the game i wasn't deeply in love with it but because i was six eleven and i had some talent and i was pretty athletic opportunities came my way and so i was you know thankful to get the opportunity to play it in college and then professionally, you know, the 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 my ceiling was a uh, training camp with the Phoenix Suns. And uh, I was trying to make their summer league team. And they very nicely and politely put me on the bus back to the airport before mm. they departed to go <laughs> to play in Vegas. And, you know, and I, I played in Mexico for a few years. I played in the USBL, I played in the ABA. I played 13 games, I think it was, with the Globetrotters. I, I say I piecemealed together a three or four-year career. Um, and. I was helpful in, in getting into this character because thinking about the intensity of pursuing a world championship, just mm-hmm. the intensity of that, it's just, it, it, the whole experience has been incredibly humbling. And, I, and I'm thankful that, like, my, my little bit of basketball experience relative to the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's was able to help me um, appreciate his journey that much more.
0: Um, your academic career, you are a doctor. Not like Dr. J where somebody came along and just called you a doctor. You are truly a doctor. And I remember uh, when we were um, presenting the show, you were like, no, 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 just call me Solomon. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't know too many doctors, seven-foot-tall doctors that play the piano and are incredibly sexy. Uh, Talk to me about your academic career and all of the things that you have achieved, which I will never achieve
1: when i was playing college basketball i i was hyper aware of just the the history of the structures of the inequalities um the way uh leadership positions were handed out um uh, who you know who got these you know multi million dollar coaching jobs who didn't um uh, just the labor that went into uh maintaining the incredibly entertaining thing that is college basketball. And, ooh, I mean, I, I went through it. I was depressed, anxious. Uh, there was there was highs and lows. I mean, there's things that I'm very grateful for. I developed some wonderful friendships, like brotherhoods, people I'm still in contact with today. And, you know, and, and I feel like it just made me curious about how people experience higher education, post-secondary education, so everything after high school, right? There was a lot of things that were not acknowledged about just the behemoth that college sports were and just like the, the like the steroid it was into the arm of higher ed, just the way campuses have benefited from this labor, like benefited like to the billions, right? And so mm-hmm. I think I was, when, when I was, it was like my sophomore year at Berkeley and I was like, I want to get a PhD and I want to study how institutions uh, take on the, these identities, these sports identities. And so, uh, the University of Georgia, which is like you talk about the belly of the beast—that's SEC football, basketball. I mean, sports is a religion there, and it's just so different than the Bay Area where I, where I where I went to college. And so, I got admitted to the Institute of Higher Ed at the University of Georgia, and had some really great mentors. Got to see up close and personal college slash professional sports, and um, you know, and 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 was I, I think. Uh, when I was still, I was still writing my dissertation when I got a job at Stanford, and I was still trying to figure out where I, it, wh- like, what part of campus am I most passionate about? What role on campus? And I would worked in administration for a number of years, but I'd also gotten the opportunity to teach. I got hired as a lecturer in the Graduate School of Education. I also taught some undergrad courses, and I loved teaching. Like that, that's the thing I was by far most passionate about. I was like excited about it. I thought about it all day long. Administration was great as well, but it, it's, it's also, you know, there's, it's it's a minefield. And so, uh, the way this worked out, I had left Stanford because I was, my plan was to spend a year writing and applying for faculty gigs. And like, it was like 30 days after I left Stanford, I I got an opportunity to audition. So just the timing of everything. Um, so yeah, you know, and, and I think like, I, the way I, I also think about my experience in higher ed and academia is that's that's one of the traditional learning spaces i mean like the like the object is you go there to learn but i also realize you know, when i've sat in movie theaters or watched a really good film at home the impact that that's had on me is absolutely uh, on par with some of the greatest lectures i've ever heard and so it um it it's uh, you know i i look at this as like the non-traditional learning space that has like mm-hmm. you know an immense amount of impact on our world
0: Shifting gears, the scene in 105 where you are with Cheryl and you are going through the newspaper, orange juice in the morning, and basically getting a glimpse out into the world. You might actually enjoy it if you put the paper down and look out the window.
1: Can't turn the world off just to have a pleasant morning.
0: Well, can you drink your juice first? Well, maybe it would be wise for you to quit tomorrow and we run away and bum it to an ashram somewhere.
1: I was hoping one more year would be enough. Well, who knows? Maybe it'll be a good one. You know, if nothing changes, nothing changes.
0: It showed a stoic side of Kareem, and I just wondered, in that moment, what were you thinking? What got Mm. you to where you needed to be in that scene?
1: Oh, man, well, hats off to just the brilliant minds that set up the bones of the sets, right? And the the, mm-hmm. the spaces where we shot. Man, it was so easy to get into 1979 with that newspaper, with that you know, mm-hmm. very authentic newspaper mm-hmm. with these stories, the picture of the magic show smiling in his face, right? Mm-hmm. And then right on the other side of that is like the oncoming Reagan era and even just the way the smog was recreated. It's just It's just so brilliant how... We are brought like literally. I mean, I feel like I, when watching it, I feel like I was put into a time machine back into the '80s, where where you have this 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 black man who's conscious and thinks deeply about the world around him, who's confronting all of these like rapidly changing things that are that are happening right in front of him.
0: You and Kareem. I mean, beyond the idea of the casting, you know, the fact that you guys similar complexion and height and all of that other stuff. What do you see in him that makes you feel like there's some kinship? I guess
1: I feel like Kareem. I Giant Steps is one of the first big books that I read growing up. His autobiography, and I've always appreciated his resistance to being boxed into one dimension. And I'm sure you, I, I'm sure you've experienced this as well, right? Which is again why I felt so uh, supported with this, is just stepping outside. And walking down the street, there is, like, this energy of assumptions that just comes your way, right? I've had so many people tell me, you need to be on a basketball court. You Like, you're wasting your life. And I'm just like, you don't know anything about me. What are you talking about? Like, And so I feel like Kareem represents to me liberation because he just absolutely rails against this idea that he should just be one thing or that you know him.
0: I was six foot tall, I think when I was 12 or 13 years old, 6'1", 6'2", and people stopped looking at me like a child.
1: Mm.
0: Like I was a grown man in the eyes of many, even though I hadn't developed. uh, And I still looked at the world. I still played with action figures, and I read my comic books, and I was still a kid. But the world looked at me like a man. Mm. And I could only imagine, you know, finding empathy for Kareem and being so tall and standing out and seemingly introverted um i guess wanting to be able to escape from the world or just blend in with everyone else but you tower over everyone else and not being able to Mm -hmm. and you're living in a period where black men are seen as dangerous or threat Mm -hmm. and you can't Mm -hmm. blend into the crowd at the same time Mm -hmm. and you play this game and you play it so well that that's even more of a light that shined on you. And so, for me, it was always finding empathy for Kareem beyond the admiration.
1: Mm. Yeah, You know, I think you guys did a great job in really capturing this this onslaught of change that was happening, right, uh, on the very intimate level between Kareem and Magic. But the reality of what was happening with the NBA, the kind of owner... That Jerry Buss was relative to what owners were like in the past. The way people were looking at the game, right? The, how all of that was changing. I think I was, I was reading something the other day that said, you know, counting high school, college, and professional level, he's the winningest basketball player of all time. So to have that kind of resume, um, I can imagine that it's pretty easy to be rigid with regard to how much you think about People adapting to your style versus you being open and 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 composing something together with something different, and yeah, you know, I I I feel like I I've, I've been in the place of being the first year player on a D one team, and I've been the captain, and so I definitely was was considering that and thinking about that as I was putting together how I wanted to portray uh, the great Kareem Abdul Jabbar because yeah I <laughs> there there was there was a moment when I was doing my uh, Addition with with Quincy and and Adam had us do some improv and it was we're on an airplane and and Magic sits next to Kareem when he's not supposed to the the seat next to him is always supposed to be empty and I basically just thought okay well how would I have responded in this way if I were a senior and like some bugaboo freshman that just wanted to talk wanted to sit next to me so um, but yeah I think it's uh, I think I think the writing the writing is just it's so good and I really feel like it it captures. That, that very human experience of change in a way that, that's relatable to everyone, sports fans and not sports fans alike.
0: There is a character um, that is introduced in this episode Spencer Haywood, mm-hmm. played by the great Wood Harris. I mean, I went 12 rounds with that demon,
1: knocked my ass out. But here you are, and I shouldn't be. I got a second chance at life.
0: What was going through your mind the night that, I don't know if I called you or I texted you, and I said, we have a dinner (laughs) scheduled for me, you, and Wood to sit down and talk about this character. (laughs) And the biggest thing for me, just a little bit of information, I wanted you guys, I know Wood, Mm -hmm. and I wanted you guys to sit down and talk because I knew you'd be spending a lot of time together. Yeah. And I remember some of your early thoughts, but what do you feel comfortable with sharing right now? Sure. You
1: know, when you told me, so we were shooting the, the scene with uh, Jason Clark, Jerry West, where Jerry West and Kareem are in the, Kareem's backyard mm-hmm. talking about the possibility of <laughs> drafting magic. And I think it was during one of the breaks, you, you told me that it was wood. And I, I started, like, tearing up. Unfortunately, I mean, like no tears actually came down because I, I, you know, I didn't want to mess up my makeup. Mm. But gosh, I mean, I shared this with with Wood when I was in college. I had a Remember the Titans poster on my wall, and it was it was not just any poster. It was it was like I'm not going to talk about how I got it, but it was like it was specifically for a bus stop, and my my teammates knew how much I loved that film, how much of an impact that film had on on me, uh, as a person, as a competitor. Uh, and so, so I was telling, but like, you know, and in in addition to Remember the Titans, The Wire, like, I feel like there's these, I I feel like I have this collection of watershed moments in my life where I started seeing the world, the world differently. Remember the Titans is one, The Wire was another one. And when you told me we were doing dinner, I was still reeling from you telling me that he was playing Spencer Haywood. And so, man, I, you know, I, I, there was a part of me that just wanted to sit there and just listen to you guys talk. And I appreciated you kind of, you know, pulling me into the conversation. Um, <laughs> just because Wood was so generous in how he talked to me about his experiences, you know, his thoughts, his insights around the craft, how to become better at the craft. And his encouragement was really powerful. You know, there was there was this, I have so many cherished memories from this experience, but w- one one that really stands out. When he came to our practice for the first time, when we were mm-hmm. doing a lot of the basketball training, it was a day when everybody was there, the, the, the background, extra, the, the lead. And, you know, we're, we're doing like layup drills, kind of warming up, getting ready. And, and Wood come. And everybody knew he was coming. They're like, oh, Wood might be coming today. Wood might be coming today. So you hear the, the murmurings amongst everybody. And he walks in the gym. And I'm all the way on the other side of the gym, sitting in half court, and he, like, walks directly in. He looks around, sees me, points at me, and walks right over to me and, like, daps me up. And I'm like, what is happening right now? Like, this is, you know, and so, yeah, I just, whew, I loved performing with him. It, it ah, oh, geez. It got so real sometimes. <laughs> it got so real sometimes that it, 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 like, there were a couple times where I was like, he's going to punch me right now on set. <laughs> like, like, this is about to go down. So. Well, for me just
0: as a writer, to be able to watch you two guys dance and do that thing, Mm. great honor, man, great honor. Mm. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about something that was important to me when we were talking about Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. What a lot of this generation doesn't seem to realize about Kareem is his significance to the civil rights movement, human rights movement. Just how much he put his butt on the line. Man, in the name of freedom, in the name of um, trying to make this country and this world a better place. Um, this episode embodied a lot of that spirit, but I wanted to hear a little bit from you in regards to what, how you see him, how he sort of factors into that scenario
1: for you. Yeah. You know, when I think of all of the ways that, Kareem stood up for human rights for civil rights the Cleveland Summit it's just 55 years ago. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was the fact that these like adult professional athletes invited him into that conversation it's like just whoa man like when I was a sophomore I was just trying to figure out my class schedule you know and it's <laughs> like and he's having this like globally important conversation about man yeah so so I think um, I feel like a lot of times with Kareem, the focus is on how he may or may not interact with people mm-hmm. in passing in the public, and it's like, like, what else do you want from this dude? Like, he's done more in the morning than you've done in like ten years, America. Like, it's like, <laughs> what? You know, so I, it's just the risk that is associated with being a buzzkill, a buzzkill in the way where you're like, you're you're pointing things out that. Uh, go against the Kumbaya narrative, right? Um, yeah, and I it's think, uh, man, yeah, I, I, I just I admire his bravery. I, I admire his bravery. I admire his courage. Um, the other thing I think about with with Kareem because I feel like there's there's the conversation about how he interacted with sports journalists, and and we know during that time it's not, it was not a very diverse set of uh, of people asking him questions about the game, et cetera. And so there's like. All that's lost in translation. All that's lost in just the, the 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 assumptions that are made about what he should be thinking about, how he should be comporting himself. Like, oh man, I think I think he has. I, I think he has a lot of patience. I, I like. I think he has a mountain of patience. And um, you know, really, I mean, really, I think he represents a generation of black folks who have a lot of patience that inspires me. When you know, when I want to complain and get you know, get antsy. I, I, I feel like it's—I I have a great resource to, you know, to think back on my my, my parents and my grandparents and to help kind of, like, balance out my perspective.
0: You know, uh, again, we touched on this a little bit, but walking through life with mm-hmm. this um, expectation, I talked about it from being in a place where being seen as a man, even though you're a young person, but even now, you know, at your age, at your stage— with the world being what it is, as polarized as it is right now, and politically things not necessarily being in a place of uh, peace or evenness. What's it like to be you, to be a tall, educated black man in today's world with all Mm. of
1: the highly charged stuff that's going on around us? You know, I it's... Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, one of the first things I think about is I I worked at Stanford, I think it was eight years. And I I had an incident where I was coming out of my office and I'm, you know, slacks and a dress shirt. And a woman uh, who's walking by me jumps and takes her purse and like throws it to the other side of her body and like, like, like pivots off in the next direction. It, it, It was just like a, just a reminder of like, there's these identities and there's these assumptions that people have, and it doesn't matter where you are. So for me, it's like, when I think about all the spaces I've been in, right, like the, you know, elite institutions, there's still this reality of the way blackness is seen, the way black masculinity is seen, the, 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 uh, the assumptions that are made about it, et cetera. And, you know, and, and so I feel like, so, so to answer your question, what it's like, it's like, it's not getting derailed by those, those sad realities that are a result of people's false assumptions, and trying to stay the course, and maintaining the balance, and playing the long game. The name
0: of this episode, the title of this, is Pieces of a Man. Mm. Uh, Gil Scott-Heron, one of my mm. favorites. And to give you a little bit of context to uh, how this came to be, the title of the episode, I'm a huge Gil Scott Heron fan. I wanted Gil Mm -hmm. music all the way through the whole episode. And I wasn't thinking about it at the moment. And Max said, why not just call it Pieces of a Man? Because of what Kareem, the various facets of what Kareem is going through. And um, I was like, yeah. And that driving scene with you when the song kicks Mm -hmm. in is my favorite moment (sighs) so far of the series. And that's saying a lot, because it's a lot of great moments. But that moment in particular, man, really captured everything that Gil means to me, Mm. what you mean to me, what the show means to me. It's just a really beautiful moment. Again, man, just being able to be a part of it and working with you is one of the great joys of being a part of this show. So thank you.
1: The appreciation, the deep appreciation goes both ways. Right, you know you were my therapist uh, for for those seven months <laughs> you know i I just being portraying this great man and thinking about there, there's there's the discussion around like, oh, he just had such a hard time with sports writers and with the public, and it's just like you've not walked thirty seconds in this other human's shoes, so I think you should really just put you know pump the brakes on. These assumptions or these 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 declarations about who they are as a whole person, which I again, the, the title Pieces of the Man, is brilliant. Because if any humans, if all of their pieces were as heavily scrutinized and as highly visible as these these people we're talking about in this show, these celebrities, like holy moly, like I, I feel like they perhaps they'd think about the world a little bit differently.
0: I can't speak for Kareem, and so I won't. But if I were him. And someone were to portray me. And the amount of heart that you've put into this, that's what I would want and hope for. So with that, thank you. Thank you for being you. And thank you for today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Joining me now is the director of episode 5 of Winning Time, Tanya Hamilton. Tanya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rodney. With this show and with this episode in particular, uh you've got multiple storylines that tonally are different. You've got the Jerry Bus storyline going along with the Magic Kareem dynamic and Kareem. What's that like directing this type of show that has so many different moving parts and do you bring a different energy when you're doing a different type of scene,
2: you know what? Actually, that was that stuff was so much fun. You know, sort of the move between all of these different stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the Laker girl stuff was uh, hilarious and fun. John C. Riley, I remember, would throw in these wonderful ad libs. There's a there's a, a section where the um, you know cheerleader coach lady is sort of you know kind of uh, you know, with the girls and, and kind of doing their thing. And and John C. Riley comes in and he's like, you do it this way, you know, and he starts sort of sex. gyrating. Use, your, right? sex. Use yes. your sex. Use your sex. Use your
0: sex. I want them calling the Catholic League of decency. You know, it's women. It's their sex, it's not just their legs. Come on, girls, move it. Move your sex. Move.
1: Like this girl here, like this tan girl. There we go. Those are the moves we're looking for. Right there, right,
2: Jeannie? I thought it was brilliant. Um, you know, so I think that... Um, I just, I don't think it was hard for whatever reason. I don't think it was very very difficult in that show to move between the worlds. Because, again, I think a less clear script uh, would have made it very difficult, you know. Um, But the worlds were so uh, specific, Mm -hmm. so well delineated that I, I think everybody
0: knew what was what. One of the things that I think I was proudest of was how you work with Solomon. Who I love. Me too. So much was asked of him in this episode. One scene in particular, the scene at the mosque with the imam. I try.
1: I say the words five times a day. But they're not coming from my heart. They used to. Are you afraid God is lost to you? Maybe I'm afraid to face
2: him. I think on Solomon's end, it was a tough scene. And I think he needed that time to find the tone of the scene. You know, I think that we did takes where he was much bigger than he needed to be. Um, I think that he had to sort of uh, find the internal balance in a way of that moment you know i think it was the scene that he had to be really reflective in and i needed to kind of give him the space to kind of know that he could do it in a bunch of different ways and that you know and that we'd be able to kind of look at it in the edit and figure out what
0: was the best in this episode there's a lot of tension between magic and kareem and under that tension it speaks to a lot of different uh, ideas um there's a generational divide I think um, there's some, I guess you can call it um, how black men should carry themselves. Uh, Certainly from Kareem has a point of view. Magic is coming into it from a younger point of view. Um, Do you have any thoughts about any of that stuff?
2: Yeah, actually, you know what's interesting is just how Solomon, there were— scenes that he struggled with, Mm -hmm. especially the internal stuff. Mm -hmm. And that stuff is tough. But what he was especially good at was the uh, dismissive... Oh, yeah. ...don't mess with me, (laughs) I don't like you, you know, sort of stuff. (laughs) He was great at that. And so, like, that was always really fun, those Kareem looks. Yes. And just really feel like we could nail them, and very, very fast. He just took to those things, like, super well. Whereas, like, I think that Quincy... I think he's a tremendous actor mm-hmm. and, you know, and really, um, <laughs> could sort of play the you know play the straight man yes. in such fun ways. The scene when he comes in with his boombox mm-hmm. in um into the locker room and he's just having a good time. And then Kareem is at the locker and it's just the look that he gives him and how Quincy is just sort of like just oblivious, just yeah. happy in this moment. Just you know, and then like once he figures out that you know what everybody else kind of already knows, the look on his face is so wonderful. He's just, he does, you know, he's just his foot's in his mouth, but he sort of didn't understand it, you know, and um, I don't know. He's so I I loved working with the two of them because I think, in a lot of ways, the conflict between the two of them worked to both of those actors' strengths.
0: I agree. Uh, But it boils over, and we have an actual fight between the two.
1: We out there running like Ferraris while your old ass moving like a cutlass on two flats. What did you say to me, boy? You heard. Everybody else just too afraid to say. Evil as you is walking around mad at the whole world. You know, get in, get in, get in there. Hey, hey,
0: hey. Solomon is really good at being able to convey anger. Yeah. And being able to get to a place where it felt really authentic to me from the first take. And I thought Quincy's reactions uh, when he was going—when the, when the scene flips to where Magic is no longer trying to curry favor with Cap and it goes to another place. I thought that's one of my favorite scenes in the episode because it's a really important scene because without that, we don't get to the part of the imam and all of that. And yeah. We don't get there. We need this part to get us to that part. What did that feel like while you were in it?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, um, that there are a couple of interesting things that happened that day. I mean, first of all, I should say that that whole sort of sequence, uh, Alex, the AD, who's an mm-hmm. extraordinary AD, yep. um, and just filled me, frankly, with joy every single day. Uh, not words I would normally say <laughs> about an AD, but I just, I, I love that guy. Yeah. And the DP... You know, I felt like there was a real collaboration that day, and and I I uh, I speak about Alex and Todd, the DP, mm-hmm. because there's something about like men that sort of happened that day that was really interesting. So, you know, we orchestrated this fight. I wanted to shoot it uh, in part through a window because I I love frames within a frame, um, and. And we rehearsed it, but would only rehearse it to a certain uh, level, mm-hmm. and then stop. And 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 then when we started to shoot it, th- I remember Alex uh, and Todd saying to me, "You got to stop it before. Like, if if we can shoot the whole thing, but if we're only shooting part of it before we go inside to shoot, like when they all sort of pile in on each other, um, you know, we got to stop it at this certain point." And I was like, "Why?" Like let's just
0: shoot <laughs> it,
2: you know, whatever. It'll be fine. They're big guys, yes. And they were like, no, no, you don't understand, because at a certain point, they're not going to be able to stop, right? And I was like, oh, like just sort of, you know, I I appreciated having somebody you know, they're on this very sort of male level mm-hmm. saying...
0: Dealing with all this testosterone.
2: Right. Yeah. These are big guys, you know, and they, they're sort of pushed forward in a certain way, and it just becomes harder to control. And I thought that that was really interesting. And I thought that, you know, being able to kind of see both um, Quincy and, um, and Solomon you know, kind of find themselves in this moment of anger. Um, And, you know, I, I, I thought there were some takes, and I think you guys use it in the show, where, like it's so authentic. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fury between the two of them and ultimately how the scene is written where it starts off in such a different place mm-hmm. and sort of, but there's so much under the surface that is there in the beginning of the scene that it just finds its way to the top. And... um so anyway, I mean, I just I felt like a big part of that day was trying to both control the rage that sort of naturally came out of all of these men. And at the same time, you know, kind of capture those mm-hmm. really authentic moments that were happening between the two of them. It's, uh, I have
0: other questions to ask, but I want to ask my own personal one, uh, because you mentioned this a couple of times on set. What was your relationship to the game of basketball— <laughs> <laughs> Before this gig, like yeah, you know, just opposed to where it is now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still
2: bad. Oh. But, <laughs> you know. I mean, I love basketball. I watched. I was a Sixers fan for years when I lived in Philly. But yeah. um, yeah. You know, like I'm just sort of ignorant. Like it's just lazy.
0: You know, it's just sort of funny. Like, <laughs> I was gonna give you more credit.
2: Though. Yeah. No. No. It's very lazy. I don't. I. I have a very limited math skill like i can't perceive math all that well and basketball feels very mathematical in a way and um and there are a lot of sort of mathematical ish rules i remember those basketball scenes and i would just be like what the hell is going on like just really not understanding but you would say you it know. out loud too. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah lead lead with my faults. yes, yes <laughs> always yes. better
0: Tanya, thank you again for coming in and having this conversation with me. Truly was an honor working with you um, throughout this entire process, but in particular this episode. Can't imagine anybody else doing the job that you did. Um, It's a beautiful episode. It's my favorite episode. And I'm glad you were at the helm. Thank
2: you, Rodney. It was an awesome show. Uh, Will remain in my memory
0: as a great experience. We're almost out of time here, but before the game clock hits double zeros, I want to share our buzzer beater moment of the episode. So the D.O.C. uh, plays our mom in this episode. Welcome, brother. It's rare we have a man of your stature in this humble place of worship. And most folks that know the D.O.C. know that he is a West Coast hip-hop legend. Uh, Written many hits. Dr. J's The Chronic all the way down to N.W.A. And Max was the one that uh, first talked to me about how I felt about casting him. And I wasn't sure because his voice is unique because of the damage that was done to his vocal cords in a car accident. But after hearing it again and again and again, he sort of brought an earthiness to the
1: role. That's why he made you tall, so other men could see and become inspired. And that's why he gave you knees, brother so you can kneel with
0: everybody else. Which made it more believable. So, big honor to be working with him. He came in, great attitude, was incredibly prepared, and really nailed the scene. So, big shout out to the DOC and really, really, really appreciated him coming in to uh, play this role for us. Thanks for listening to the official Winning Time podcast. And a special thank you to our guests, Dr. Solomon Hughes and Tanya Hamilton. You can watch Winning Time on HBO Max Sunday nights. Our next episode comes out on April the 10th. See you then. This is the official
2: Winning Time companion podcast. And it's a production of HBO, Pineapple Street Studios, and Hyper Object Industries. Our executive producers are Harry Nelson, Claire Slaughter, Gabrielle Lewis, Barry Finkel, Max Linsky, and Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our lead producer on the show is Jess Hackle. Aaron Kelly is our managing producer. Shaka Mali, Jonathan Shiflett, and Elliot Adler are our producers. Darby Maloney is our editor, and our engineers are Davey Sumner and Jason Richards. Production music is courtesy of HBO. And you can watch episodes of Winning Time on HBO Max.